Welcome to the Wednesday Night Bible Study with Don Williams. This podcast is in honor of Don's legacy and teaching. He lived what he preached. Enjoy. I think I've mentioned before that Paul's letters are organized by length, and so uh, in the New Testament, Romans is the longest. It's first. We're getting down to the shorter letters of Paul. First Timothy has six chapters. And then 2 Timothy and Titus and Philemon, and then we'll be ending the Pauline corpus, the body of Paul's letters. Uh, But uh, tonight, uh, as we start this study and start the new year, I want to give just an overview to 1 Timothy. And then next week, we'll delve into chapter 1 in some detail. And there are study guides in the back available if you want to take those with you and uh, do some studying during the week yourself. So uh, let's read through chapter 1 just to get a taste of this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful the unholy and irreligious for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer And a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Uh, We'll end the reading at that point. May God bless his word to us. Um, And uh, uh, again, what I said tonight is that this is going to be uh, introductory to uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, When we come to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, these are called... Uh, the pastoral epistles of the New Testament. Um, And they're the general letters of Paul, uh, uh, they're the prison letters of Paul, and then they're the pastoral letters. And these are called pastoral letters, I guess, because they deal with 
a lot of specific issues, uh, kind of pastoral issues for the church. Um, but uh, having said that, that doesn't shed an awful lot of light on 1 Timothy. If we continue to read, probably 1 Timothy is best known for sections giving requirements and responsibilities to elders or overseers or bishops and deacons and, uh, and dealing with some of the practical matters of church life. But there's a specific context out of which this letter has come, and I want to talk about that with you tonight. And that is that, uh, uh, as we see here in verse 3 of chapter 1, Timothy, who is Paul's son in the faith, his disciple, and his representative, is in Ephesus. Um, and there's a conflict going on in the church. The church is stressed by division. The church is under attack, and that attack is coming not from the outside in terms of false teachers who are, who are coming into the church, but the, the attack is coming from the inside of the church itself. And so it's in, uh, in this, this kind of wrenching of the life of this Sub, a substantial body of believers and the confusion that's coming uh, out of the uh, division of leadership uh, and false teaching that has come up among the leadership itself that Paul sends Timothy or, or commissions Timothy to stay in Ephesus and then writes this letter. Um, turn over to Acts chapter 20. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, we see Paul prophesying that this will actually happen. Um, Luke gives us his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem with a, 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 a substantial amount of money that he's collected from the Gentile churches uh, for relief to the believers in the Jerusalem church. And uh, he stops at Ephesus and he gathers the elders at Miletus, which is the port entry into Ephesus. And uh, there he tells them that they will never see him again. He's on his way to Jerusalem um, and he gives them kind of this farewell address, which is one of the most moving passages in the whole of Scripture. In the midst of the farewell address to these elders or leaders uh, of the church at Ephesus, in verse 28, Paul says, and now I'm reading, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Okay, so that's attack from the outside. Now look at the next verse. Verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So what Paul says is that there's going to be this double assault upon the church at Ephesus. There will be those wolves that come in and try to devour the, the flock, the believers from the outside. But even, and this is really... Uh, in a sense, more devastating, even among the, yourselves, Paul says, even among the leaders, the eldership, those who are in authority in the church, Paul says, there will arise those who will teach false doctrine and who will try to lead people astray and take them with them. So Paul has this prophetic word that he gives to the leadership of the church that this, these false teachers will arise up out of their midst. And in fact, this has happened now. And uh, sometime later, Paul writes this letter uh, uh, commands Timothy to remain in the city of Ephesus and then writes this letter to deal with this, uh, uh, these false teachers who have, who have risen uh, within the church. And let me say that um, this is one of the most difficult things to deal with. It's one thing, you know, to be able to uh, kind of address the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or, or people who, you know, deny the gospel or don't believe it or pervert it or what have you uh, from the outside. And that's fairly safe. 
But to have to deal with uh, those who would deceive and destroy the church and undermine the work of God from the inside in terms of leadership, elders or pastors or those who have been given positions of responsibility, that's a really, really difficult thing to, to have to face and, 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 to, uh, and, and to address. And what I, I guess I want to say to you tonight, because I don't see any elders here so uh, you know, as such, so uh, you, know, you might say, well, how can this letter possibly be relevant to me? Uh, the fact is that uh, from a human point of view, apart from God's sovereignty, which ultimately I trust and rest in, but from a human point of view, if we look at history and we look at the fickleness of our own hearts, we're always under threat in terms of being carried away from the faith. And one of the things that's really difficult to think about for me are people who have been radically converted, who have made such a glowing profession of faith in Christ, and then at some later time in their walk with the Lord have fallen into sin or wandered away or given up, um, and, uh, and again, I'm not making a judgment about their eternal salvation, but their lapse from the faith, or for those who have uh, begun to become confused and confused others around them, charismatic personalities who have had a lot of leadership and visibility, and people have responded to them, and then they've sown seeds of confusion and doubt and destruction. And, and let me tell you, that's always a threat to the church. It's a serious threat to the Coast Vineyard, because it's a serious threat to every church. And Paul talks about in, 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 in 1 Timothy in chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4, he talks about doctrines of demons, and that's kind of the literal translation, deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, that there will be demonic teaching that will come up within the church. Um, in other words, uh, you know, part of the context of this is the continuing spiritual battle for the faith that we're all faced with, uh, and, uh, and part of the context, of course, is just the human reality of those who would for their own selfish gain, uh, try to divide the church or, or per pull people away from God's intention for them. And so uh, uh, that's the setting uh, that we have for this letter. And so the question that we want to ask ourselves tonight is, what's Paul's response to this threat which has risen, arisen within the church itself? Those leaders that have fallen away from the faith, that are deceiving others and uh, uh, and that are endangering the purity and the life and the unity and the, and the blessing of this church in Ephesus. Uh, let me just uh, uh, call your attention to a few verses to document the point that, uh, that this is going on among the leadership and, and among those who are within the church itself. Look at chapter 1 at verse 6. Paul, Paul talks about those who, who are teaching doctrines, devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies in verse 4 of chapter 1. In verse 6 he says, some have wandered away and, and, and turned to, uh, from, from, uh, from the foundation of the faith, turned to meaningless talk. So there's, there's this wandering away. In verse 7 he talks about those who want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're teaching. Again, look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Paul says, uh, uh, warns Timothy uh, about uh, uh, those who have rejected uh, uh, faith and a good conscience. He says, some have rejected these and, have, and so have shipwrecked their faith. And then he becomes specific in verse 20. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And later in 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul will warn again about Hymenaeus. So this guy, uh, who's obviously been in a position of leadership in the church, uh, not only survives all of the, kind of the, you know, the teaching and, and, and discipline and what have you that Paul uh, deals with in 1 Timothy, but as he writes 2 Timothy, which is the final letter that Paul writes right at the end of his life, once again, um, in verse 17, 
he talks about the teaching of those false teachers, he says, that will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. And then he talks about their false teaching once again. So, um, uh, so there are those that Paul names who are involved in this uh, kind of deceptive uh, destruction of the church. Again, in chapter 4 and verse 7, he warns against godless myths and what he calls old wives' tales. And then in chapter 6 at verse 3, he uh, warns about false doctrines. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. So again, these scattered warnings through the letter show uh, that, that uh, the burden that's on Paul as he writes this letter is the false teaching and the disruption of the church that's taken place. And because... Uh, clearly, again, going back to what he prophesies in Acts chapter 20, because this is in the leadership or the eldership or those who are overseeing the life of the church, this is uh, one of the reasons why Paul spends the time that he does talking about qualifications for leadership and what have you. Because, again, this is not only instructive, these are the people who should be leaders in the church, it's also corrective. So Paul sets the standard again for, uh, for uh, true godly leadership within the church in light of the disruption that's going on. Okay. So, what's Paul's response? Well, the first response that Paul makes, and again, what, what should our response be in terms of guarding our own church, guarding our own souls and our own lives? Well, the first thing that Paul does, he asserts his own apostolic authority. So Paul writes this letter again from the commission that God has given to him, from the gospel that has been revealed to him, from the ministry that God has unfolded through his life. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Obviously, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So as Paul is giving commands, he's giving commands, which he does in this letter, out of the command that God has given, calling him to be an apostle. And so Paul is speaking out of the very divine authority that God has entrusted to him. So, uh, so Paul stresses his authority here, again, because authority is being undermined in the church. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. So as you deal with Paul, you're dealing with an apostle by God's command who's been appointed into uh, the service of, of, of Jesus Christ. So again, Paul is stressing here God's grace, God's initiative, and, and God's action in his life. Uh, uh, and, and, and by implication over against those who are asserting themselves out of uh, immoral motives and who are corrupting the church. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out on me abundantly. So again, see, Paul's talking about his authority given by God's command, um, his service uh, and commission that God has placed upon him, the grace of God that's come to him. And, uh, and Paul uh, then gives his, his own witness to the transformation of, that Christ has brought into his life. Uh, Paul says, I am the worst of sinners in verse 15. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. King James Version says, of whom I am chief. So Paul says, uh, again, uh, he's, he's the chief of sinners. He persecuted the church uh, and, uh, and blasphemed Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so Paul hasn't out of kind of human design and plan sought to achieve responsibility and authority in the church. Paul hasn't engineered this for his own selfish gain. Later, toward the end of the letter, he warns about those who are in it for the money. And Paul hasn't been in it for the money. And so it's by God's calling, by God's grace, by God's uh, gifting in his life that Paul carries this authority. Okay? 
Again, uh, in 2.17, Paul speaks of himself as a herald and an apostle of the truth. Uh, let me read those, uh, those verses to you. Uh, ooh, wait a minute. There's no 2.17. <laughs> it's around here somewhere. Well... Okay, <laughs> um, it's, it's, this, is, this isn't terribly important. I, I, I wrote, well, no, I, I, wrote down, I wrote down the wrong reference here. Uh, oh, here it is, 2.7, I'm sorry, 2.7 rather than 2.17. He says, and for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So notice how Paul is you know, kind of making these as if he were on trial before some jury or court. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Paul's you know, stressing again his apostolic authority, and I'm the teacher of the true faith over against the false teaching that's infecting the church and what have you. So, so again, Paul begins by stressing his apostolic authority. So that's the first thing. If the church is going to be guarded... The church needs to function under apostolic authority. If your life and my life is to be guarded, we need to function under apostolic authority in our lives. Now, of course, the question comes, well, are there living apostles today who exercise this kind of authority in the church? Let me give you the historic Reformed answer, and the historic Reformed answer is no, not in the sense that the original apostles were eyewitnesses to the ministry of our Lord Jesus and his resurrection, and Paul was added to that number as a unique, special inner circle who were uh, 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 commissioned by our Lord to bear both his message and his ministry, and they stand behind the canon of the New Testament. So apostolic faith now, uh, you might say, is authenticated and guaranteed by the written word of God. And uh, so uh, it's the authority of apostolic faith within the life of the church, namely biblical authority and specifically New Testament authority, that is carried uh, that, that carries apostolic authority you know, you might say, into our church. So the question is, all teaching, all doctrine, you know, all uh, uh, Christian behavior and what have you must be measured by this standard. So this is, you might say, a bottom line protection that we have against falling away or, or, uh, or being misled. And that is, whoever comes teaching any kind of teaching, regardless of how credentialed they are, or how uh, widely recognized they are. The question is, does this teaching stand up to the Word of God, to the teaching of the apostles, to those who were called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to bear His authority in the life of the church? That's the first test, okay? Uh, and, 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 you know, far be it for me to claim to be an apostle. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> and uh, the lightning would come, this storm, it'd be a terrible time for me to claim to be an apostle. But... Uh, but I believe that God has gifted me and called me to be a pastor in, in the church, and I am under authority. Namely, I'm under other authority within the fellowship of the vineyard. And uh, that authority goes to John Wimber, whom God has called uh, to be over the vineyard, and uh, we're called to be submitted to him. And, uh, um, and I, I don't believe that John is an apostle in the classic sense, but John carries much of that kind of authority in the life of the church. And I don't want to get off and talk about that in detail tonight. I'd be happy to come back to that some other time, maybe as we continue on in 1 Timothy. But, um, but look, don't think you can make it by yourself. 
We need to be submitted to each other. We need to be submitted to the Word of God. We need authority in our lives. And I can't tell you how many times a good brother or sister or a teacher or someone you know, who, uh, who God has brought into my life has corrected me and directed me if I have a humble and teachable heart and I'm willing to be submitted to that person. And so what Paul is asking the church to do, first of all, is to submit to the authority that Jesus Christ has entrusted uh, to him. And he stresses that in, in the letter. So that's, that's the first barrier against being swept away by false teaching. Okay, secondly then, what Paul does in this letter is he sends Timothy or, or, or tells Timothy to remain in Ephesus and Timothy then is delegated as Paul's representative to bear his personal and direct authority in the life of the church. So um, Paul, again, is, uh, is, is not in Ephesus. Paul hears of the trouble that's going on in the church. Paul tells Timothy to remain there and then Paul commends him. Look at it. Uh, so, in other words, there's a, there's a delegation of authority. Paul bears Christ's authority. There's also a delegation of authority to Timothy. Chapter 1, at verse 2. Uh, Paul addresses this letter formally to Timothy, my true son in the faith. And notice the word true here. In other words, Timothy's life is in line with the truth. He's a son, a spiritual son uh, to Paul himself. And it's in the faith, the faith that's in Jesus Christ, that these two men are bound together. So, again, Paul, uh, you know, I might say, confirms and credentials Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 2. And... Uh, uh, and then he, he uh, gives Timothy his task in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine. So uh, Timothy has the responsibility to silence those who are corrupting the faith and undermining God's work in Ephesus. So he is to bear that authority in the church. Look at verse 18. Once again, Paul speaks about Timothy. He says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction. Uh, let me stop at this point and just make a footnote. This letter is addressed to Timothy. Clearly, Paul is writing to Timothy. Okay? At the same time, I agree with Gordon Fee, who's written a commentary on 1 Timothy, that Paul is also addressing the whole church at Ephesus, but he does it through Timothy. And the reason why he writes specifically to and then through Timothy to the church, rather than simply to the church at Ephesus, is because of this conflict in leadership in the church. In other words, if Paul were to write to the church, as a whole, um, the question is, who would he write to because of the division that's set into the church? So what Paul does is he writes to Timothy. He has specific things to say to Timothy, but he also writes to the whole church and expects this to be a public letter. This is not just a private letter, and thus the substantial instruction that's given in it. So what Paul does is, as he's talking to Timothy, he also talks about Timothy and commends Timothy and his ministry you know, with the church in mind. So look at verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, Timothy, my son... I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and what have you. And, and then he goes and speaks of, of, of these false, uh, false leaders. Okay, But notice again how Paul uh, credentials Timothy. My son. So Timothy's in personal relationship and submitted to Paul as his spiritual father. There are prophecies that have been made about you. So uh, not only does... Uh, Timothy have this spiritual relationship, kind of mentoring relationship with Paul that God has spoken uh, prophetically about Timothy and, uh, and those prophecies have come from God. There's been the living word that's been spoken concerning uh, Timothy and his ministry and what have you. And, uh, uh, and so Paul's encouragement is, is, uh, 
is not only, you might say, relational, but it also comes from the spiritual vantage point of these prophecies that have been addressed to, to him. So that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and what have you. So uh, Paul sees uh, Timothy again involved in this spiritual battle. In 6.12, you might want to just glance over there, Paul uses this same phrase again. Um, he says, but you, uh, look at verse 11, but you man of God flee from all this, which is uh, uh, the pursuit of riches, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. So Paul sees Timothy here as a warrior who's involved in fighting for the faith uh, in the church at Ephesus. And of course, he's fighting against the false teaching that has come, come in. So, uh, so uh, again, what Paul's doing here partly is he's commending Timothy as he describes Timothy's calling in ministry. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, again, Paul's speaking to Timothy. If you point these things out to the brothers, namely the false doctrines of demons that endanger the church, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Uh, so, once again, uh, Paul is, is identifying uh, Timothy in his ministry in 4.11. He says, command and teach these things. So Paul's commissioning him to bear that authority into the church. 4.14, he again credentials Timothy or speaks of his credentials. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message or prophetic utterance when the body of elders laid their hands upon you. So Paul uh, is speaking of Timothy not only in terms of his personal relationship and authority as a spiritual father to his son, but also the confirmation, you might say, or the mediation of other leaders Who've, uh, uh, through whom God has spoken prophetically concerning Timothy's ministry, and he carries that authority. Um, and, and that's a heavy thing. Uh, so, uh, so both you might say both directly and indirectly, God has confirmed Timothy's calling in ministry. And we'll talk more about that prophetic gift and, and, and its function when we get to these passages as we study through, uh, through the chapters together. Okay? Um, and then in 4.16, Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. And so Paul, again, is assuming that Timothy's life and doctrine will be displayed before the church. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so, again, the implication being that this ministry is to be carried out in Ephesus. Uh, 5.21, I charge you in the sight of God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality do nothing out of favoritism. So Paul uh, charges Timothy again to carry out this ministry in a very uh, kind of awesome way. 6.11 But you, man of God, flee from all this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So once again, uh, Timothy has made his confession. He's received his calling. It's been confirmed by the church. And, uh, uh, and, and then he's to carry out his ministry accordingly. Uh, look at verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in so doing have wandered from the faith. So once again, the final warning in this letter is for Timothy to stand firm against those false teachers. So, uh, so uh, once again, my second point is, in terms of what Paul is seeking to do here, is he not only asserts his authority, but he delegates that to Timothy, or he, he speaks of the delegation of that authority, Timothy's role uh, as Paul's representative uh, here and, uh, and what God has done in his gifting and calling and, and, and life and ministry. And so Paul is commending Timothy all the way through this letter. So there's kind of a scattered commendation of his authority. Uh, number three, and this will be a short point, Paul also plans to return to the church 
uh, to bring uh, direction to it. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So here Paul really gives the purpose of his letter. Uh, but the letter is written to reform the church and to, and to bring uh, God's order and, and direction and correction to it. Uh, but it's also, you might say, a stopgap measure uh, uh, because Paul is hoping to come back to the church and then give the full force of his ministry in terms of correcting what needs to be corrected. Okay, so Paul, Paul's authority, that authority which operates through Timothy as his delegate and minister in the church, Paul then uh, hopes to return to the church and plans to do that, to exercise that immediate authority. And then fourthly, uh, Paul... Uh, you might say, sows through this letter the gospel thread. He, uh, he makes references again and again, and he, what, what Paul will do is he'll give little kind of gospel summaries or gospel gems along the way. And so there's this thread of the gospel that runs all the way through the letter, although a lot of it has to do with, again, uh, matters of church order and discipline and, and, and things like that. Um, in verses 4 and 5, he speaks of, of, of the faith, which, uh, uh, which has been given to us. Uh, uh, the goal of the command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In 1.10, he speaks of uh, standing in sound doctrine. In 1.11, he uh, calls, uh, refers to the glorious gospel. Uh, but look at 1.15. This is an example now of a little gospel uh, diamond uh, shining here in, in the setting of this letter. Verse 15 of chapter 1. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Okay, this is what you ought. You can trust this. You can accept this. Again, think about the context of those who are denying the gospel and perverting it and drifting from it. All right? Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then Paul puts his own comment in, and I'm the worst of them. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, But leaving that aside, what Paul gives us here, you might say, is just a foundational statement of the faith. Christ Jesus, and the word Christ, of course, is anointed, the Messiah. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Savior, the anointed Savior, Christ Jesus, now this is a proper name for our Lord, came into the world, okay? He came out from out of the world, namely from heaven. He came into the world. And what's the purpose of His coming? To save sinners. And so Paul says, you can count on this. So what he does right at this point in the midst of talking about himself and Timothy is he puts this, you might say, this little gospel nugget in here just to crunch on as you read through the letter. Look at chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We'll get another one here. Paul says, and again, uh, the, the context here is his instruction about prayer and, and, uh, and what men should do and what women should do. But right in the middle of that, look at verse 5. He says, um, Look at verse 3. He says, This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, look at this gospel nugget here. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. So again, what Paul speaks here is kind of a gospel summary. One God, one mediator between God and man, the the incarnate uh, Son of God who took on our human flesh, who represents God to us and represents us to God. He's the mediator standing between uh, the, the holy God, the Father, and ourselves. Okay, Christ Jesus, and, and, and as the mediator, he came and gave himself as a ransom. So, in other words, he paid the price for us to be brought, bought out of bondage and liberated from, uh, 
from, uh, from the slavery that we were in. He paid the ransom price for all of us. So you see how, once again, right kind of in the middle of talking about praying and this and that, Paul speaks the gospel right into the church here, okay? Look at 2.16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great, and here it is. Speaking of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. And this is set in a kind of poetic form because probably what we have here is a hymn fragment. This was actually sung in the church. But look, at, uh, look again how it's a, a summary of the gospel. First of all, the incarnation. He appeared in a body. He took our flesh and blood. He triumphed in his resurrection. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And here's a reference to the Spirit that he was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was appeared to and, 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 and witnessed to by angelic beings. Uh, the world is now being evangelized by his message. He was preached among the nations. Believed on in the world. Uh, the world now is coming to faith in him. And he's been exalted. He was taken up into glory. So notice again how Paul just, you know, in a sense, kind of stops here and speaks the gospel into the church and then goes on to the next subject. So he's looking for occasions to, uh, in a sense, to call the church back to the, the, the central point of Jesus Christ, who he is. He's the mediator. Uh, he, he came to save sinners. Uh, you know, he came and, and now has gone into glory and, uh, and, and, and what have you. So, uh, so, uh, so this, this is part of Paul's tactic through the letter. In 4.6, he speaks of the truths of the faith and, uh, and the good teaching that Timothy is to engage in. And look at 4.9 uh, and 10. He says, This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially those who believe. So once again, the living God is the Savior of all men. Paul here stops uh, in the midst of this uh, instruction to Timothy personally uh, to, to, to introduce once again the, the central truth of the gospel, that God is the Savior of all who believe. And he says, this is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. In other words, don't fall for these genealogies and myths and old wives' tales and wild stuff. Stand fast in this simple truth that God is the Savior and he desires all to be saved. Okay, look at uh, 6, 13 through 16. Uh, uh, this is kind of our last point on this. Um, <clears throat> Paul, uh, just again picking up, uh, Paul again is, is, is talking to Timothy. He says, In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice here what he's saying about Christ. Um, that, that, he, uh, that he testified before the, the Roman uh, governor uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and made a good confession, which of course led to his execution. Um, he's coming again, the, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. See, so again, as Paul is coming to the end of the letter, he calls our attention back to Jesus Christ giving his good confession, uh, Jesus Christ coming in glory, and then the God uh, who, who rules over all, who's, who's the Lord of all things, and, and he speaks of his character and his attributes, and, and then really gives an description of worship and praise to him be honor and might forever. Amen. So, so what I'm saying here is Paul comes bearing his own authority. He delegates that authority to Timothy. He plans to revisit the church. And then he laces this letter with 
simple confessions of who Jesus Christ is and who God is and what have you. So he's constantly drawing the church back to the truth. So this is another part, you might say, of what we need to do to be faithful to the Lord here and to, uh, and to keep on target, to keep, to keep ourselves centered. We need to constantly be called back to the fundamental truths of the gospel. How can this happen for us? And I'd say this if Kevin weren't here. Worship. <laughs> Worship. You know, one of the wonderful things about the worship songs in the vineyard is that, uh, that they express the basic character of God again and again and again. Kevin has written some wonderful songs of praise, some of them reflecting some of the great themes of the book of Revelation. Uh, and we need to have this great sense of the immortal, uh, you know, eternal God. And we need to have our focus on Him. Uh, there really, a day shouldn't go by without our spending some time worshiping the Lord. And you might say, well, Don, how do you do that? And well, one of the ways to do it is just to get a worship tape and start singing along with, you know, people who are worshiping on the tape. Listen to K-Wave um, in the off hours. <laughs> Prime time, you'll always get teaching. But in the off hours, like 2 to 4 in the afternoon and, and, you know, 10 to 12 or 10 to 11.30 or something in the morning. And then in the evening, there's a lot of worship music on K-Wave. Um, uh, you know, pop a cassette in your, in your, in your tape player. Uh, learn to sing yourself. You know, you, you don't need a tape and a choir. You can just sing to the Lord. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and again, especially if you clue into the worship music that God has given to the vineyard, you'll be rehearsing again and again in your spirit, in your mind, and in your heart the greatness of who God is and His attributes and His purpose and the coming of Jesus into the world. And, uh, and our songs tend to focus around two basic things. One is praise and the other is is a kind of devotional intimacy with the Lord. We need to be developing both of those things in our worship. But worshiping God, that's one of the great ways that you can do that, okay? So that, that's one thing. Uh, secondly, learn a few good memory verses. And you might say, Don, I have a terrible memory. Well, listen, by my age, I have a terrible, lousy memory, okay? You know, I'm not 14 or something. But if you, you know, if you'll just take a 3x5 card or take a little, you know, a little card and write you know, some verses down and carry it with you and look at it regularly. Stick it in the, uh, you know, stick it in the, in, in the mirror, in the bathroom. Wake up in the morning, read it over. You do that a little bit. You'll begin to collect some verses and select verses that just have these central truths. You could go right through First Timothy, just pick out these verses that I've shared with you tonight, kind of these gospel, little gospel. You know, this is a faithful and trustworthy saying, uh, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am, you know, the biggest. <laughs> and, you know, and you might be able to identify with that in some ways in your own heart. You know, Paul knew why he was the, the worst of sinners. And, and, and you might, you know, have a humble spirit before God and think that you might be the worst of sinners. I don't know. But that's up to God, not up to me. I don't make those comparisons. But uh, but but again, just having having these little summary statements and, and memorizing them, writing them into your heart and then calling them to mind. One of the best things that ever happened to me, and I never knew it at the time, when I became a Christian, this was I was in high school, this was years and years ago, but I got involved in the Navigator's memory system, topical memory system. And the Navigators are a, were a ministry that was begun among servicemen, and then it's kind of branched out into other things. But uh, they had these little Bible verses on cards in packets, and you'd carry them around, or we were encouraged to carry them around and, and, and learn them, which I did. I learned a big bunch of them. And they've been with me my whole life. I'm so grateful for it because, again, you know, if I don't have a Bible or it's not convenient or if I'm really in need, those verses are there. 
And you know, and I learned them 40 years ago. And they're right there today for me. So, so again, that's, that's another way that we can, we can kind of keep the gospel central. Thirdly, it seems to me, whenever we get together as believers, you know, we need to exalt Jesus Christ. And whatever, you know, whatever it is that we're doing or whatever we're talking about, I mean, if the Lord really needs to be honored and exalted in our prayers, in our preaching, in our teaching. And uh, I think we need to grow. We need to go beyond, in a sense, the simple things in the faith. But you know what? We also then need to be called back again and again to the simple things in the faith. We never outgrow the gospel. Listen to Luther. Luther says, we are so thick-headed, the gospel needs to be continually pounded into us. And that's what Paul does in this letter, among other things. He just pounds the gospel into, you know, into the church through Timothy as he, as he writes this letter. And so we need to hear the gospel. Why should we gather together to worship? Isn't it enough just to know the Lord? I mean, I can be on the golf course on Sunday morning. It doesn't make any difference. I can worship the God, God you know, out in the surf. You know, I'm just, and what have you. And I don't deny that you can do that. And I think nature certainly reflect, reflects God's glory and what have you. But we also need, as Hebrews says, not to forsake assembling together because we need to simply hear the gospel again. We need to be with God's people. We need to lift our hearts and our voices to Him in worship. You know, we need to be encouraged by each other and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and stay on track, okay? Now, so what I'm saying is that, that Paul threads the gospel through this letter, and then finally, and we'll end with this tonight, he then brings order into the church. And so he talks about men and women, uh, roles, functions, slaves, widows, deacons, and of course, he addresses the whole thing of elders. And he uh, not only, uh, uh, and, and actually the word elder is not used in First Timothy, but it's the word overseer or bishop. Episkopos is the original word in, in Greek, uh, and it's rendered overseer in the NIV, starting in chapter 3 at verse 1. But the word elder and the word overseer or bishop are interchangeable in the New Testament. The word elder refers to the position or the status, and the word overseer refers to the function of leadership, okay? So elders, you know, like submit to your elders, you know, blah, blah. Uh, the word elder means, you know, uh, has to do kind of what you might say with the dignity or honor of the position. And then the word overseer, which Paul uses here, has to do with the function. Elders eld as they oversee the church. Elders don't eld as they put on big hats and, uh, you know, and, and ermine robes and walk around looking pious and hold endless committee meetings planning budgets and arguing about the color of the paint in the nursery. That ain't elding. Elders eld as they oversee the life of the church. Now, in the Coast Vineyard, we have three elders at this point who are really designated as elders. We actually have more than that. We don't call them that at this point. Uh, John Murphy and Bob Hassan and Chris Turner are three elders. They're in the bulletin. We print their names every week because we want people to know that we actually have elders in this church along with our you know, staff who are, are in those functions too. But why is it that Bob Hassan and John Murphy and Chris Turner are elders? Well, let me, let me tell you. First of all, because they fulfill the requirements that Paul states for elders in 1 Timothy. Now, they wouldn't say that. <laughs> they, they wouldn't say that. They're too humble and they're too aware of their own sin you know, to say that. But I say that uh, on, on their behalf. I know these men. I've known them for, for a long time uh, and, uh, and their, their, their lives have been tested. And so they fulfill the character qualifications, but they also, secondly, fulfill the ministry qualifications. And the question is, well, how do they do that? And the answer is, they all lead home groups. 
So if you want to get to know Bob Hassan, you wonder, well, is Bob really, should he be an elder in the church? You can go out to his home group and see. You know, he's elding out there. And you might say, well, what about John Murphy? Well, he elds just down the street. And uh, John and Katie have their home group meeting three blocks from the church. You can go down there. And uh, uh, the same with Chris Turner. Uh, back out again uh, off of Highway uh, 8 to uh, that direction. But, but uh, so what I'm saying is the reason why these men have been, in a sense, set apart uh, to carry responsibility within the church beyond, beyond, you might say, the responsibility that we all should share is because not only do they qualify, but also they have functioned as elders for some time. So elders eld. And there's a point in which, as elders eld, then the church needs to set some apart to carry out, uh, uh, you know, really to bear discipline and authority within the church. So uh, Jay Hohn and myself and Mark Caldfleisch, we meet every month with the elders. We talk over what's going on in the church. We pray for the church. Uh, we discuss, you know, future vision and, uh, and needs in our own lives. We are accountable to each other and what have you. And so that's building more of a sense of, of unity and strength within the Coast Vineyard. And I believe it brings blessing to the whole church. So part of Paul's task here then, you see, is to kind of call the elders back to elding and to get them out of uh, heresy and speculation and division and worldly pursuits and what have you. And he does that in the letter, and we'll see how he, how he does it uh, as we go along. So anyway, that's kind of my introduction to 1 Timothy tonight. It's not thrilling. It's not scintillating. It's not exciting. It's uh, kind of basic and foundational. But, uh, but again, I think it's practical for us in the sense that, remember, we're in a spiritual battle. Satan wants to deceive us and carry us away. Many, many, many have drifted from the faith. I'm not saying they're lost if, they're, if they were ever saved. I believe in the so-called doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. But many have drifted away from the faith. So we need to take warning, take heed, uh, lest we drift from the faith. And the question is, how can we keep from that? Have apostolic authority operating in your life. Keep centering your life on the gospel. Worship God. You know, build the core of the gospel from the word of God into your life and then be in a body where you are submitted to God's leadership in, that, that is serving you in humble, um, godly ways, not in prideful, presumptuous power trips, but in humility and service and love and who fulfill the qualifications that God's established for leadership in his church. We'll talk more about that as we go along. Okay? Well, that's it for tonight. 